Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Good evening, children of the night. Come on into our cabin and get cozy. I had just spent a week on the Isle d'Orleans. That's an island just outside of Quebec City and had a wonderful time. It rained pretty heavy a few days and I got quite a bit of reading done. I do have to admit that most of it was from Tony's Turf, Sci-Fi, James S.A. Corey, and some John Scalzi, but I did finish reading The Slade House. It's been quite a popular book, and I think that it was quite a good read in our genre. I do have to admit that the first section was a little iffy for me. You see, the book changes character perspective a few times during its course. I didn't know that in the first character as a child. It's a personal dislike of mine. In fact, speaking of John Scalzi, I gave up on Zoe's tale in the first chapter because he did, I felt a perfect job of giving the perspective of a teenager. However, David Mitchell did a good enough job of explaining to me that this child had some sort of damage that kept me going. The book is subtle and horrific. It's a fun and fast read that has a few twists and devilish turns. Our first story of the night comes from Wayne Allen Sally. Wayne Allen Sally lives in Chicago, Illinois. His first published story, Rapid Transit, has been reprinted eight times in five languages. The late Carl Edward Wagner included Sally's short fiction in Dawes' Year's Best Horror Stories, at which point the series ended. Sally is a five-time finalist for the Bram Stoker Award offered by the Horror Writers of America. His novel, The Holy Terror, has recently been reprinted in Germany and is available through Crossroad Press, an audiobook, ebook, and trade format. His memoir, Proactive Contrition, was released in July of 2013 and chronicles his being born with cerebral palsy, struggling with being bipolar, 
in describing his writing career starting in 1985. Primarily a writer of short fiction, his work appears in over 70 anthologies, including All-American Horror, Best Stories from 2000 to 2010, Little Deaths, Love in Vain, Splatterpunks 1 and 2, Nightmares on Elm Street, Necrophiles, Bourbon Pen, and Seeds of Fear. He has also written several chapbooks, Pangren, The Scarlet Sponge, and For You, The Living. Sally corresponded with serial killer John Wayne Gacy until his execution and wrote an article, Send in the Clown, for Death Realm magazine. He has had two story collections with Wounds Still Wet and Fiends by the Torchlight, and in 2016, Crossroad Press will be publishing Rapid Transit, 30 Years of Short Fiction, by Wayne Allen Sally. Sally has also done film and television work, including Blood on the Plains, Step Off the Block, The Shadow, Chicago PD, Chicago Fire, and Chicago Med. Link to his website will be in the show notes. And now, Wayne Allen Sally's Mitch. From Out of the Past I don't want to die. Neither do I, baby. But if I do, I want to die last. After several weeks of being in the city together, Tava and I no longer felt the need to stand scrunched together on the crowded L. Sure, we'd exchange glances when we passed a certain landmark or street-level oddity. And so it was that I stood across from her on a sardine-can rush-hour train as it headed south from Belmont. I was leaning against a pole near the exit door and was able to scribble some notes and observations for later usage. I could see Tava in profile, staring out the graffiti-scratched windows as the red line stopped at Fortin Avenue, her brow furrowing as she took in the angles of DePaul University, a green sign that served as a marker for the Lincoln Park branch of the Chicago Public Library, and silhouettes of people with flowing hair wearing iPods painted on the cars of a northbound train just pulling in, close enough to touch. I made a mental note to remind her of how the train cars were painted several years back, giant lottery balls that looked more like huge clown suit buttons. I knew she was fascinated by the closeness of the trains woven between second-story buildings, Denver's two commuter systems, the RTD light rail, and the 16th Street Mall shuttle were both at ground level. Tava Benavides in profile. Only five feet two, but oh, she loved high heels. Shoulder-length, black hair, and light chocolate skin. And no, I'm not going to use some lame coffee concoction from Starbucks to describe the hue. The thing about Tava was her smile. It was always there, if not by parted lips, then in her brown eyes. The AC was on in the train car and Tava's nipples would harden like ballistic missiles. The guy sitting below her could have had a dreamy eyeful, but he was reading GQ and looking at a page of cars that were all bright yellow. I doubted he was thinking about anything but material objects. She was the woman that everyone noticed on the train, the one person every woman envied. And when the train pulled away from the platform and ten crowded cars became a blur of faces, the face and the eyes of Tava Benavides would be the only one remembered, sliding into the subconscious of a hundred commuters. 
I stopped writing as the train started swerving and jerking as it neared the Sedgwick stop on the way to the loop and concentrated on the businessman sitting in front and below me as he filled out a crossword puzzle. Seventeen down was the word flank, or at least that's what the guy in the suit thought it was. I could see he had made several crossouts and scratch marks. Thinking about the word the man chose made me want to take a quick glance at Tava's fantastic ass, tight in beige capri pants. In heels, her legs moved like pistons climbing the L steps. The last time she saw me checking out her backside, on the way north, she leaned over, smelling like milk and cinnamon, and hissed, Look at my ass at your own peril. One of her favorite words, back when we had been instant messaging on AOL months earlier. I knew I had lost ten dollars to her. As soon as I told her, I mentioned her ass before page three of whatever story I ended up writing. And whereas Tava's smile and dancing eyes are a place to lose your soul, her butt is a freaking godsend. I'll probably owe her fifty bucks if I don't stop now. The train stopped at Lake and Randolph. I showed her where the parking lots held the ghosts of old restaurants, like Jimmy Wong's, Pago Pago, and George Diamond's Steakhouse along Wobash. Mentioning the new condominiums along State Street, Tava referred to the yup scuzz that had wormed their way through the various neighborhoods in Lodo, lower downtown Denver, where Wazee Street was much higher end, in her words, and much of the non-landmark district housing had been raised for townhouses. We both grimaced as we thought of what our respected cities have in common. I introduced her to Gold Coast dogs with their steamed, poppy-seeded buns, and then we walked down Randolph Street to the borders, stopping so Tava could take in the neon Chicago theater and the off-track bedding parlor on the first floor. She wanted to buy a Richard Matheson collection I had told her about, and we were at the register nearest the door, Tava facing me, looking at the back cover of King Suckerman, the George Pelicanos novel I put off buying for years, always saying I'd get it next time. So she didn't see the guy in black being stopped by the armed security guard, his backpack yanked from his shoulders, revealing a lime-green shirt underneath. A plethora of magazines tumbled from the unzipped bag. Film facts, cinefantastique, tales to confound, and astounding B-movie monsterama. What a weird haul to swipe. When the lanky kid grabbed for the overweight guard's gun, I, I started seeing things in triplicate, hearing conversations from different directions. I know this will sound strange, but the last time I felt this way was when I was stone sober and was in a bathroom that had a triptych of mirrors, and I watched myself, clear as can be, urinating from three different angles. Four, if I looked down. Stone sober. Crystal clarity. The tagline from the old Outer Limits show. Angle one. Tava, looking at the paperback. Infinity-colored hair spilling on the cobalt cover. The magazine spilling in slow motion, faces of actors in films fanning the floor. The woman at the register, now noticing the struggle just ten feet away. Angle two. I'm staring out at State Street. No one is opening the doors, just staring faces. No police backup. The only other person noticing the roust is the woman at the register, rapidly snapping gum. The pink kind that comes in a roll. I recognize the smell. Angle three. Maybe two seconds have passed. 
Somehow, Tava has become intangible, and I'm diving for the gun, almost in the thief's hands. And I'm thinking, why the hell would he steal magazines? And there's a flash. I truly believe the gun has gone off in somebody's hands. I blink away the pulsing yellows and oranges, like a flash camera had gone off in a dark place. Barstools. The smell of blended scotch whiskey. I rub my palms against my eyes. Then I found myself staring at Robert Mitchum? Bobby the Mitch, circa 1947. Pink shirt with three black diamonds. The shirt Eddie Bailey wore in Out of the Past. That's my favorite Mitchum film, Tava's as well. I asked him what's going on. Mitch flipped his hair and said, fuck if he knew. And then he called me a dumb cockknocker. Don't you remember anything from your past, man? He sounded like a hippie. Know your exits. From my knowledge of the Our Lady of Angels fire in 1958. Prepare for impact. When Harry Fassel's car spun out of control on a snowy Eisenhower expressway a few years back. And complete selflessness. Where'd you get that from, man? Makes you sound like a drill sergeant. Actually, it was from a Hawkman comic, but I said nothing. Just shrugged. What can I say? I mumbled. I dug my fingernails into the red felt on the table, scratched down, trying with futility to make claw marks. It looked like felt, but I might as well have been touching glass. Mitchum spoke. Did you ever hear the story of the right hand and the left hand? I looked up, and he was now dressed as Depression-era Reverend Harry Powell, hands folded, prison tattoos on each knuckle, love on the right knuckles, hate on the left. At least that's how it was in the 1955's movie. He clenched his fists together, the blood rushing to the tips of his fingers. The words I saw were Tava, fear, in place of love and hate. What's up with this, boss? Mitch drawled. The words are different. What the hell are you doing here? I asked, trying to stay calm, even though I was sitting in a dimly lit tavern with my greatest film idol. Thank Christ it wasn't Elvis. I'd have shit my pants. Me? What am I doing here? Mitch unclenched his hands, spread his fingers on the table like he was getting ready for a manicure. Boss, it's your life. You brought me here. What do you mean? I asked, my heart still beating fast. Why were there doorways lining the wall farthest from us? Just like that director Lawton, I wanted to film Night of the Hunter in the Appalachians. But no, we had to film it at the Rowland Lee Ranch in the San Fernando Valley. Everyone wants their way. He spit on the floor, and it hissed in the steam. Where the hell are we? What's with the doors? I pointed to my left. I looked back and stared at Lucas Dooling from Thunder Road. I saw the pattern. I was on the run, or running to something. The doors, between Tava and Fear in a tight, calloused grip. The doors looked like bathroom doors, the cute ones in theme bars, where you might see seahorses and mermaids, or a painted Marilyn Monroe and Sinatra further down the hall, past the payphone. But the layout was different. Streaming light stretched from each at varying lengths. And there were framed photos on each door, 
It was Max Caddy from Cape Fear who explained things to me. Remember how I calmly walked down the streets in the film, so certain of myself, unafraid of death? These are your choices where you were before I showed up. I'm dreaming this, right? I focused on the photos. Tava, the cash register lady, the security guard, and another person in the border's entrance. The light below the door fanned out in different distances the further away the doors went. Baby, I don't care what you're doing, Mitch sneered. I want another scotch and I ain't supposed to have one until you figure out why you're here. Damn rules. Don't call me baby, I said, trying to sound brave. I was getting the idea on what I had to do. Fulfill my destiny. Okay then, cockknocker. Mitch slammed his empty scotch glass against the felt table. Look behind you. What do you see? The glass frame clearly showed a scene I still had nightmares about. United Flight 175 slamming into the south tower of the World Trade Center. There was darkness beneath the door. You getting it yet, dipshit? I wasn't in New York on September 11th. I was at a Borders waiting to interview Ed McBain when the terrorists attacked. That same Borders that Tav and I were in now, or sometimes somewhere. That's why the door's dark, idiot. Mitch really needed to have some more scotch. Screw him. I'm nobody's enabler. You would have tried to save lives if you'd been there, Mr. Selfless. But you would have died in seconds. Hence, the darkness. Now why don't you take it from there? The time it took me to react, the slower I moved, the more people would die, to the point of innocent bystanders entering the store. I saw Tava in the first photo, still reading the back of the Pelicanos novel. I looked back at Mitchum, only now he wore the brim hat and trench coat of Philip Marlowe. She's one swell-looking babe, he said. Farewell, my lovely, or the big sleep. It's got to be your choice, brother. I stood up, not looking back, faced the light behind the door, stared at Tava's face. Her forehead did it from reading the book synopsis, made the sign of the cross, and touched my father's dog tags from Korea, always around my neck. I opened the door, and my chest exploded. The last thing I heard was Bobby the Mitch shouting for the invisible barkeep to pour him a double scotch. I had taken so goddamn long to figure things out. I felt hands on my shoulders. Paramedics? Christ, I was shot in my heart. I was gone. I'd see Mitch and Elvis, Frank, Gorshin, and Rodney Dangerfield. No, not paramedics. Someone massaging me. Someone who smelled of cinnamon and milk. Someone with pizza and Pepsi, not top-shelf scotch on their feathered breath. Wake up, hotshot. One of my pet names for her, back in the day, a few months after she had seriously started writing, but was still under a modeling contract. After a particularly rough shoot, she instant messaged me on AOL that she felt like she was a meat puppet. I looked up at the screen, my outline for the Skull Carpenters. It was after 3 a.m. I had fallen asleep in my wheelchair. Come on, babe, she said. Let me help you in the bed. We shared adjoining rooms. I couldn't blame her for sleeping alone. I wore a colostomy bag and I pissed out my leg. 
I saved a few lives in that bookstore. And now, I was a meat puppet forever. I shook myself awake, looked at the computer. It was after three. My outline for the meat puppet in the bone house half finished on the screen. I stood up, clicked the off key, and waited for minutes for the blue light to shut down. Next to my notepad and glass of water was the January 2007 copy of Fantasy and Science Fiction. I smiled as I saw the words, Junie's story, with the name Tava Benavides beneath in bold red print. I used to dread going to sleep, even though the shoplifter's gun never went off, and the only one hurt was him banging his head as he was pushed into the squad. But months had passed, and things were good. Moving away from Chicago was really what made me forget. I crept silently across the hall into the bedroom, afraid to wake her. The full moon rose above buildings I barely recognized. I lay down without moving the blanket much, faintly smelling cinnamon and milk and musky sweat from the summer night. I looked out the window at the silhouettes behind the buildings, also unfamiliar. Sometimes I wasn't even certain of the constellations. I thought of choices and again wondered if I was just dreaming or if I was really and truly dead. The sheets on my side of the bed smelled like embalming fluid. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. That was Wayne Allen Sally's Mitch, as read by Seth Williams. Seth Williams is the avatar for a three-kilometer sentient starship that is parked probably uncomfortably close to the third planet. Surprisingly, he has not yet been discovered. He is very happy that the inhabitants have discovered enough technology that he can communicate in this limited fashion. Any communication can be directed to www.theboojum.org link will be in the show notes. Thank you, Seth. 
Our second story of the evening comes from Ari Marmel. On March 22, 1974, Ari Marmel was hatched out of an egg laid by a rooster on the night of the full moon. Due to a mix-up, he wound up in the infant ward at a hospital in New York, where he was claimed as a relatively normal human and taken home. He and his family fled New York barely a year later, either because his father received a job offer in Houston or because they were chased by angry mobs with pitchforks. Reports are unclear. Ari went to college at the University of Houston. He began in the psychology program, but quickly changed his major to creative writing. It was in the first week of class that he met his wife-to-be, who goes by the name of George. No, it's not short for Georgia, Georgette, Georgina, or anything else that could possibly make sense. It was also in college that he wrote his first novel, one that he is now determined will never see the light of day and charitably calls a learning experience. Today, Ari works primarily as both a novelist and a freelancer, mostly for Wizards of the Coast. He has several novels, both tie-in and original, on shelves, and more due for release over the course of the next two years. Ari, if you can set me up with some Wizards of the Coast merch, I'll prioritize any story you send me. <laughs> well, that might be a joke. Email me, we'll talk. And now, we'll hear Ari Marmel's In Deepest Silence. Depth is now 550 feet. 550 acknowledged. Ease the bubble. Let's straighten her out. Just another chorus of the daily song. The anthem of the USS Jacinto. SSN 744. Performance without an audience except the fish and the sharks and the octopus. Octopuses? Octopi? Whatever. Sonar? Nothing yet, Skipper. We'll keep it up, Petty Officer. They're around here somewhere. Ah, sir. Should it be possible for voices to blur together like these do, while the ear and brain still absorb every word? Maybe that's what our training's really for, to help us pull what we gotta know from what we hear, even when we don't really hear it. Because I know all the voices. Commander Pierce, Sam Franks, one of the two Sams, on bow planes, Hogue on sonar. And I know what they're saying, but I don't really hear them anymore. They're like, I don't know, the audio equivalent of the dull glow that soaks everyone in the control room. Kind of a sickly glow, you know, the combination of humming bulbs and red and yellow and orange and greens of a couple dozen displays. I guess maybe that is the ultimate point of training, all told. Way I see it, if we didn't know how to just pick what we needed out of the sounds and the lights and everything around us, it'd be too damn much. You'd just sit there staring like your brain just got kicked in the balls while the boat sank around you. Petty Officer DeMarco, the other Sam, steps away from his charts, squeezing around the con to hover at Hogue's shoulder. I can't hear what they're saying, not that I'm really trying to. Problem, Quartermaster? DeMarco, currently standing Quartermaster of the Watch, looks up with a gloomy frown. Not sure, sir. The control room vibrates with the skipper's footsteps. Doesn't do that for anyone else, even though Commander Pierce isn't that big a guy. 
Guess maybe even the Sam Jack knows her boss. <laughs> We're just coming up on the end of my first sub-tour, you see, and I still haven't really decided if the Navy is right for me. Most of the other guys are lifers. Though Jones, chief of the boat, is getting on in years and might be retiring soon, and DeMarco's been talking about Hazel something or rather back home, and how she's starting to hint around the M word in her letters, and maybe he's not going to re-up this time. We keep telling him he has to, though. If we lose either him or Franks, we'll have to stop calling the boat the Two Sam Can. End of my first tour, and this is about the most action we've seen exercises notwithstanding, and we're not even the right boat for the job, just happened to be the only sub nearby when it happened. Coast Guard got the call, and they called us. <laughs> Someone's got to get the Coasties their own subs one of these days. What do you mean, not sure, sir, exactly? I know that tone. Snaps me right out of my daydreaming, even though it's not aimed my way. Pierce can't be more than five foot eight, and rumor is he shaves his head so nobody can see how gray he's already going. But he's got the voice of a man twice his size. We're not afraid of him exactly. But nobody on the Sam Jack wants him angry. Sam DeMarco straightens. So does Alan Hogue, so smartly that his headphones almost come off his ears. And starts talking low and fast. I don't get all of it from way across the con, but I hear enough combined with his hand flapping back and forth from the sonar readouts to his own displays, to get the gist. Huh. As usual, the skipper's voice carries a lot clearer. Recent seismic activity, maybe? Maybe, sir, DeMarco answers. He doesn't sound convinced. The readings don't match up with the charts of... And then I lose the thread again. Slow us up, the skipper says over his shoulder. Ahead one-third. Helm. That's the XO, Lieutenant Commander Morgan. Dark hair, somehow tanned despite life down in this tin tube, and about as physically imposing as the skipper wasn't. Slow to all ahead one-third. All ahead one-third, aye. That's Andy Malhotra, sitting beside Seaman Franks. Malhotra's the only Indian aboard, and keeps telling us that he's our practice token until we're ready to handle an Arab. The San Jacinto shudders as Malhotra fiddles with the throttle, the propellers straining like horses eager to run. Or, that's how I think of them anyway, but I've never ridden, so who knows. Keep your ears open, Sonar, Pierce orders. Active and passive systems. All eyes and ears, aye, sir. Helm. Aye, sir. Malhotra again. Soundings don't match the charts around here. Sonar pipes up about an obstruction ahead. You correct for it. Don't wait for my order. Aye, sir. Hogue goes active on sonar, and every one of us hears the first faint ping as the system starts bouncing waves of sound through waves of water. Like a blind man tapping his cane, the San Jacinto picks her way through the crevices on the ocean floor. All cause some damn civvies got in over their heads. Literally. I hadn't heard the specifics. Didn't really care, either. Bunch of scientists and students. Archaeological? Geological? Some kind of logical. Bunch of them messing around with something or other. And then all of a sudden, the Coasties get a couple of seconds of what might be a distress call. 
And of course, nobody's got any rescue subs anywhere nearby. Gonna take them over a day to get here, but us, well, we're running exercises not five hours away, and hey, could you go see if they're really in trouble? Do what you can until S&R gets there. Only, here we are, and nothing. No distress signal. No any signal, according to Seaman McKenna on radio. Sonar? The skipper asks again. I don't... Hogue scowls. Nothing clear, sir. Not even fish. I... I think I'm hearing something, but it's faint, and it's far. Details, petty officer. Uh, yes, sir. Bearing... 037 relative. Helm, steers 037. Helm, the XO repeats. Barks, really. Steer 037. 037, aye, sir. We all feel the San Jacinto pitch a bit as she adjusts to her new course. Distance, sonar? Honestly, can't tell you, sir. Hogue sounds confused with a small side order of apologetic. I can't get a clear... It's like when you're switching radio stations, sir, and you find one that almost reaches you, but not quite. So you keep thinking you can almost make out the lyrics. I assume you're not telling us that someone's singing to you, petty officer. No, sir, uh, of course not. Uh, Just an apology, sir. Hogue leans in close over the display, as though he's trying to get closer to the source of the sound. At least 5,000 yards, though. We creep ahead slowly, silly little action figures in our steel packaging. Minutes crawl slowly past, staggering and dying, and I feel sweat beating on my forehead. I'm always hot in the control room, even though the Sand Jack's AC works just fine. Maybe I just run hotter than the other guys. Maybe it's the thought of the nuclear pile just sitting a few hundred feet away. You'd think I'd have gotten used to the idea. But it's always squatting in the back of my mind like a hobo taking a dump on the curb. I don't know, what. whatever, I'm hot. Sonar? Pierce repeats yet again. What? Everyone jumps at Hogue's shout like it's a shot, necks and chairs twisting as they stare. He's still hunched over the display, one hand clapped to the side of his headphones like he's trying to push the damn thing right into his ear. Is there a problem, petty officer? The skipper asks, voice hard. Again, the con trembles with his footsteps as he moves to stand beside Hogue's station. No, sir, I'm sorry, sir, really, I just... It's just... I swear there's something... Active sonar's not picking anything up, but I can hear something in the water out there. Singing again? I think it's Malhotra who asks, but I'm not sure. A couple of the guys chuckle, but it sounds forced. And even those fade away at the expression on Hogue's face. Skipper? Hogue says softly, and I swear he sounds like a little boy asking for his mommy. I think maybe... The entire boat slews sideways, twisting off course and rocking on its axis. The skipper grabs onto Hogue's chair, keeping his feet, but I see the XO and several of the seamen go staggering across the con like it was an old Star Trek episode. 
I don't black out exactly, but it takes a few seconds for my brain to catch up with my body, to fight through the sudden vertigo. When I can see again, Franks is helping Malhotra back into his seat, and the XO is pulling himself up against the far wall. A thin trickle of blood winds its way down the side of his face. Report! Did we hit something? Negative, Skipper. Malhotra and Franks fight with their helm controls, stabilizing course and depth. Least, I don't think so. Some kind of cross-current came out of nowhere. Or at least it might as well have, since Sonar didn't fucking warn us about it. Petty Officer Hogue. Pierce twists back to the man sitting before him. What the hell do you... What the fuck? Let me tell you, hearing the skipper like that... Okay, think about your grandma or your preacher reacting that way. You might have an idea how we feel. Every damn one of us stands and turns, ignoring our own stations, trying to see. If you know anything about Navy subs, you know that we're all supposed to be proficient with every duty station. Not expert. Can't be an expert at everything, right? But competent enough to take over if we have to. So every one of us who can see Hogue's sonar station can read the display. At least, sort of. That strange underwater current had slewed the San Jacinto around to face a rock wall some distance dead ahead. Nothing really special about it just part of the topography of the ocean floor. Nothing except for a huge archway. Natural, uneven, but damn near big enough for the sand jack to pass through sideways, gaping open in the rock face. We can tell that much, you see, from the active sonar. The bounce back of those annoying little pings draws a shape across the sensors and the display. But through the arch... <laughs> that's fucked up something fierce. Parts of the image are completely blank, like the sound's not echoing back at all. Other sections are fuzzy, the edges of the image is unclear. In some cases, they're even overlapping, like some of the sound waves were knocked straight back while others punched halfway through the rock before bouncing. You ever seen a reel of film stutter and burn? If you can picture sound doing that, and then the sonar trying to make a visual blob out of it, maybe you can imagine what we see. I barely can, and I'm looking at it. And we can see something else, too. Something the active sonar's pinging back to us. Something we don't need Hogue's headphones to read. We got movement, the skipper shouts, peering over the petty officer's shoulder. Hogue! Range and bearing to target? Hogue! And Hogue straightens in his chair and begins, in a cracking voice, to sing. Hush, little baby, don't say a word. Mama's gonna buy you a hummingbird. Does it say something about me that my first thought, once I can manage one, is... He's singing it wrong. It's supposed to be Mockingbird. Petty Officer Ho, god damn it! Commander Pierce grabs the chair in both hands, spins it around so he can stare Hogue full in the face, and then falls back with a cry. Hogue's head is tilted sideways, listening intently to whatever he's hearing through the passive sonar. Tears flow freely through his tightly squeezed eyelids. 
A trail of snot glistens across his upper lip, and a thick trickle of warm, rich blood bubbles up from beneath the headphones, painting his sideburns in thick shades of crimson. And if that diamond ring turns brass, Hogue, Mama's gonna buy you. God damn it, get base up here! Lieutenant Commander Morgan's already reaching for the nearest handset. Senior Chief Base to the control room. Senior Chief Base to Con ASAP. Skipper. Sam DeMarco points a shaking finger at the sonar. Again, with the active systems going, it doesn't take a guy plugged into the board to see the signs of movement coming at us out of that fucked up stone archway. Damn it. Callan, get over here. But Pierce doesn't wait for Seaman Callan to relieve Hogue at sonar. With the boat off kilter, an unknown target bearing down on us, the skipper shoves the singing petty officer from the chair and slaps on the headphones himself. And just as quickly they're off again, dangling loose from the cord as Commander Pierce launches himself back from the board like it's bitten him. I don't know what he heard, whether it was the same as Hogue, but just in that split second his face has gone pale, his eyes wide. Sir! Seaman Jason Callan, red and freckled as an Irishman, skids to a halt, eyeing the station with more than a little trepidation. And just because the con's not chaotic enough already, Senior Chief Hospital Corpsman Philip Bass bursts through the hatchway, sprinting like a man half his age, a second corpsman close behind him. What in the hell's going... He stops, staring down at Hogue's tear and snot and blood-smeared face, singing up at him from the deck. What happened to... Callan. Pierce draws himself up, standing almost too stiffly, like he's at attention. Take over for Hogue. Shut down all passive receivers. Go active only. I don't want you listening to anything out there but the sonar ping. Base. Hogue just lost it. Heard something out there that... I don't know what. Just get him out of here and stable for now. We'll deal with the rest later. What? But, Skipper, I can't treat a man properly if I don't. God damn it, just get to it! They get to it. Pierce jumps back into his own chair, grabbing both arms. I swear it looks like he's pulling his shoulders down, forcing them to stop hunching around his neck. Callan. He begins more softly. Range. Skipper. Every movement. And I swear, every sound. Stop so we can hear that soft, shaking voice. I'll admit, I turn away from my station. And I'm sure as shit not the only one to stare at that sticky mask of Hogue's face. Skipper? Yes, Hogue? How can it know what she's saying to me, Skipper? How can it know her name? And then, for long seconds, there's only Hogue's broken sobs. Get him out of here, base. Pierce orders. Do what you can for him. Then, more forcefully, with a mental shake that every damn one of us can see. All hands, battle stations, sonar. He's shouting now over the voice of Bogdanovich. That's Petty Officer Bogdanovich, standing chief of the watch. Repeating battle stations on the IMC. Range and bearing. Callan's gaze skitters over the display. I'm guessing he's trying to accustom himself to using the thing without most of the systems running. 
Uh, bearing 019er relative. 3,200 yards, closing at... He swallows audibly. Closing at 30 knots. Say again, Sonar? Confirmed, sir. Three zero knots. Jesus Christ. Get me a firing solution. Pierce grabs a transmitter off to the side of his chair. Torpedo room. Torpedo room, I. Crackles back. I want tubes one through four loaded and ready to flood. Aye, sir. For a moment, before the line is closed, we all hear the clatter and clank of the weapons crew springing to life. Where's my damn firing solution? Skipper, target is increasing speed. It... Oh, shit. Not a man in the control room needs that oh, shit translated. Brace for impact, Pierce calls. For once, the XO doesn't have time to parrot the order. Not that there's a one of us who didn't hear it the first time. Except that, when it comes, it's not an impact. Not exactly. The sand jack jerks to an abrupt halt, just like you'd expect. Braced or not, men tumble forward, smacking arms or chests or heads on control panels. The control room turns red under emergency lighting. Fills with groans and blaring alarms, the stench of small electrical fires and sweat, and just the tiniest whiff of blood. And then, as we're hauling ourselves back into our seats, the sounds go away, overwhelmed by the creaking and screeching of compressed metal. Not from the prow, like you'd expect in a collision. No, first from the starboard, then above, to the port, back to starboard, and always always further and further aft. Almost, almost, like the boat compressing in the pressure of deep waters, but slower and so much more gradual. This isn't the sound of anything that might have struck us. This is the sound of the San Jacinto being squeezed. Crazy images of sea serpents and krakens pass in front of my eyes, and damn if I don't actually laugh out loud. Kind of an ugly, high-pitched cackle. Thankfully, I don't think any of the guys hear me. Helm. The skipper's voice is almost steady. I don't know how he manages it. What's our speed? Speed? Malhotra clears his throat, twice. <clears throat> uh, negative. We're not moving, sir. Go full throttle. Give me all a head full. All ahead full, I. The San Jacinto shakes and shimmies, like we were all at a big dance somewhere, and the walls reverberate with the propeller's cavitations. But we barely move. A brief sensation of motion, another jerk, and then nothing. Either we really have run into something this time, or whatever's holding us is stronger than 35,000 horsepower. All astern full. All astern full. Aye, sir. Are we moving this time? It's hard to tell. Helm. Quartermaster. Pierce says. Give me something. Engines are showing a stern full, Skipper, but... Malhotra clears his throat again. Petty Officer DeMarco scoots over to stand beside him for quick conversation. 
then back to his charts and his own display. We're, uh... We're showing movement, Skipper, but... No better than maybe two knots? Jesus. Sonar? It's, uh... It's moving with us, sir. Callan whimpers, just a little hysterical. Whatever the hell it is, we're dragging it with us. Around us, the hull of the San Jacinto continues to creak and whine and scream under the pressure. I swear she's starting to sound like a wounded animal. Pierce and Morgan trade glances. All right, cut him. I'll stop. I'll stop, sir. The cavitations in the water and the hum of the struggling engine fade, leaving, once again, just the creaking of the hull. Another moment. A moment more. And then... XO? Chief? Time to shake this fucker loose. Pierce takes a deep breath. Surface! Emergency blow! Now we can't even hear the hull anymore, not over a dozen shouted orders at once, and the screaming auga of the diving alarm. Surface, 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 emergency blow, helm, full rise on the planes, all ahead flank, stern, full rise on the planes, 40 degrees up bubble. This is Chief of the Watch on the IMC, all hands emergency surface. Bogdanovich reaches over his head, twists a pair of valves, and the entire boat shakes with a bang loud enough to give a bullet performance anxiety. All along the boat, compressors fire air into the ballast tanks, displacing the seawater in a matter of seconds. And the San Jacinto begins to rise. Not as quickly as it should. Emergency blow is normally like an express elevator from hell. But enough. Depth is now five zero zero and rising, Sam Franks announces. Whether the shaking in his voice is fear or just the rumbling of the boat, I can't guess. Four five zero and rising. Sonar? It's still with us, sir. Four zero zero and rising. Three five zero and rising. Still with us, sir. Why won't it let us go? Why? Steady, petty officer. He, yes, sir. Two five zero and rising. God damn it, it's still. Wait, Skipper, it. I can only figure that Callan's about to tell us the thing, whatever it is, has let go. But it's not like he needs to. The San Jacinto trembles, and then we're shooting upward, fast enough to drive my stomach pretty much into my left big toe. The boat noses upward, a bunch of the guys fall back. For an instant, gravity seems to shut down entirely, and I know we've breached the surface. It's an amazing sight. Plumes of white water and a 6,000-ton whale that you'd swear was taking flight. I kind of wish I were somewhere outside where I could see it. The San Jacinto comes down in the water with a tremendous crash and roar, one we hear clear through the hull. And then, just like that, Nothing more. It's calm. Everything but the skipper, anyway. Sonar, you keep an eye on that damn thing. Radio, get me command now. All stations, damage report. 
It takes a few to sort everything out. But, best as I can overhear, we've actually gotten off pretty lucky so far. A few bruises and contusions, a few electrical fires and a single small leak. But no broken bones or serious injuries. No damage that we can't fix. No joy, Skipper. McKenna reports. I'm not finding any damage to the radio, but I'm just not getting any response either. Either there's some kind of interference messing with the signal, or there's nobody left to answer. He's probably kidding with the last option, but not a one of us feels like chuckling. Keep at it, Pierce orders. Sonar? Still just floating there, sir, about 250 feet down. What can you tell me about it? Not a thing, sir. Still just a blob on the display. Callan pauses, frowns, swallows. I could, uh... I could turn the receivers back on, sir. See if I can... No! Everyone else jumps. Callan just looks relieved. For a few minutes, then, everything's the clack and clatter of boards and displays. The grunt of guys making minor repairs. The droning repetition from McKenna over the radio. We're all freaked and trying not to show it, but it feels like, just maybe, the worst of it is over. Still nothing, Skipper, McKenna announces. Maybe we... Skipper! Callan leans over his display. It's moving away, sir! Pierce practically comes out of his seat. Speed and bearing? About twenty-five knots, sir. Bearing one-seven-seven relative and diving fast. The skipper doesn't even need to consult the charts for that one. Back to the arch. Looks like, sir. Another brief pause as Pierce rubs a knuckle across his lips. Then... Helm, bring us about 177. All ahead flank. Chief of the Watch, prepare to dive. Sir? I'm not sure who says it but damned if it's not the closest thing I've heard to one of the crew questioning a direct order. That thing's proven itself hostile, gentlemen. We still don't know what it did to Hogue, or what happened to the civilian operation we were sent to find. Get after it! Again the repeated orders and the crosstalk. Again the dive alarm, and we're off. Depth 300 and passing, sir. Sonar? Target speed increasing to 30 knots, bearing dead ahead. Get me a firing solution. Torpedo room? Aye, sir. Flood tube one. Flooding tube one, sir. Pierce drums his fingers on the side of the transmitter. Sonar? Firing solution laid in, sir. Torpedo room. Open the outer doors on tube one. You have permission to fire. A faint thub rocks the San Jacinto, followed by the inevitable, Torpedo away! Every eye that doesn't absolutely have to remain on its own display turns toward Callan at sonar. Range to target 2,000 yards in closing, he recites. 1,900? 1,800? 1,700? I'm staring across the con, straight at the sweeping arm on the sonar display when it happens. On one sweep, the torpedo's closing on target.
Talon calling out a distance of less than a hundred feet. And on the next, just before detonation, it's simply heading elsewhere, moving away at a sharp upward angle. We hear the faint thrum of the shockwave through the hull. Target... Target remains, sir. Torpedo missed. Pierce doesn't ask how. Neither does anyone else. Probably because nobody wants to actually give voice to the idea that the fucking thing just batted the torpedo aside. Torpedo room, the skipper says, his voice hoarse. Flood tube two. He doesn't have the chance to fire, though. Right about then, the thing we're chasing drops almost straight down, vanishing from Callan's display. Through the arch. The only place it could have gone is through the arch. At the skipper's orders, Malhotra and Franks bring us around, slow and creeping, until the San Jacinto points nose first, like a bloodhound, into that gaping maw, and the fucked up sonar readings inside. And yeah, they're still fucked up. Wavering blank spots where the sounds just vanish, overlapping angles, double images, faint images, like some of the rocks and contours are only partly there. Readings the computer won't even try to interpret, just blotches on the screen. Callan looks like he wants to cry. But there's movement, too. Just a hint of something swimming, flowing, climbing, through and over and behind the impossible shapes. Helm. I've never heard the skipper's voice that quiet yet it carries clear across the con. All ahead one-third. Take us in after it. I swear I can hear half a dozen necks craning around so we can all stare at Commander Pierce. Skipper? It's Morgan, the XO, who first gave us voice. I'm really not sure that we... Are you questioning my orders, Lieutenant Commander? It's just... I... Sir... Callan again, his lips actually quivering. Those readings? I'm not sure I can direct Helm to steer us around any obstructions. Not with such strange... We'll keep it slow, seaman. But... Skipper, I... Sir, with all respect, I really... Everyone stand down. Pierce is on his feet again. Eyes wide, fists clenched so tight they're shaking and whale-belly pale. You saw the fucking thing attack us. You saw what it did to Hogue. That should be enough for you. You know why we have to do this. But we don't. Not really. And we know that he's not telling us either. We can all see Pierce's eyes, wide and unblinking flitting constantly back to Callan at the sonar station, to the headphones he's wearing. And I know the guys are wondering, just like I am, what the hell had the skipper heard out there? What did he know that we didn't? What the fuck had really happened to Hogue? Perfectly calm once again, Pierce sits back down. All ahead one-third, he repeats softly. His face ashen, Malhotra eases the throttle forward. 
a head, a head one-third, I, and then there's confusion, fear, what the hell are we doing, the skipper's lost it, gotta get out of here, no, gotta get out for that damn thing, listen, listen, oh sweetie, it's time for bed, we love you, mama's gonna buy you a diamond ring, oh stop, make it stop, oh god, make it stop, joints hurt every day now, just a little, but getting worse. Probably about time to hang it up. I've made E8, been chief of the boat for years. Time to hang it up, just wish it didn't hurt so... Enough. Definitely done. I should be home with Hazel right now, lying on top of her, feeling her hair and her breath and her boobs, not stuck in this tin can sausage fest. Fuck am I doing here? This ain't what I signed up for. Get these things off of me. Saw what they did to Hogue. Oh, Jesus God, I can't stop sweating. Gotta take a piss so bad. Fit for command? I should do something. I should have done something. Now it's too late now. And that's all me. And it's all them. And there's no difference. And now it's pain. Oh God, pain the like I can't describe. Agony like nothing any of us have ever felt, like nothing anyone has ever felt. The San Jacinto moves through places that couldn't exist, angles that didn't line up in any geometry human minds could understand, spaces between and around and under spaces. Whatever had attacked us, it came from somewhere else, somewhere outside, and God help us, we followed it. Followed it through a corridor bound in dimensions completely unrelated to height and width and depth. Dimensions we were never made for. Spaces we could never fit. <laughs> Except that we pushed too hard. And now, squeezed from directions that have no names. We fold and compress and flow until we do. On the far end of the passage, another arch, leading back into the ocean not more than a few hundred yards from where we'd started. We drift out, the mangled mass that was once the USS San Jacinto and her crew, and slowly settle on the ocean floor. So we wait. Just wait, blind and deaf and silent, for the water to slowly corrode us away until we waft apart and maybe, maybe the long and endless nothing will end. Until then, we're denied even the feeble comfort of prayer, for not all of us believe. And even if we did, the cold steel offers us no tongue to voice our cries. That was Ari Marmel's In Deepest Silence, as read by Devin McLaughlin. Devin is a man from southern Ontario who has a harder-than-normal time of writing about himself from the third-person perspective. Also, he sometimes narrates things. Should you be interested, you can follow his narration work by carefully peering into his bedroom window at night. Devin just asks that you please keep it down as people inside are trying to... Devin just asks that you please keep it down as people inside are trying to sleep. Thank you, Devin. That will be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Our show was produced by our editors, Philip Oldham and Scott Silk, and theme music was by David Raiklin. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify.
Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 